This is Brooksy Boutet, your host of Behind the Lines, the Houston Lawyer Podcast. In this episode, we'll examine the intersection of the law and the coronavirus pandemic, from COVID-related innovations to what's happening in the Harris County juvenile justice system. First, we have two attorneys from Boris Technology and Intellectual Property Group, Carrie Jordan and Donna Haynes. Carrie advises large-scale clients on patent prosecution and IP portfolio management, agreements, licenses, and transactions involving IP and risk consulting. She also has significant experience in crafting and conducting effective and efficient IP due diligence for investments, acquisitions, and divestitures. Donna worked in the biomedical and biotech industries before law school. Now her practice focuses on transactional patent and trademark matters, in addition to advising clients on freedom to operate, patent validity, infringement analysis, and due diligence for protecting developing business prospects. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. We're looking forward to this discussion. Yes, thanks much. Of course. So given the pandemic, there's a lot of discussion around vaccines. Can you help our listeners understand generally what a typical vaccine development timeline looks like and how that intersects with patent rights? Sure. So according to the CDC, vaccines are developed, tested, and regulated in a manner that's pretty similar to other drugs. Actually, some people believe that vaccines are even more thoroughly vetted than non-vaccine drugs because of the number of human subjects that are required for testing, and post-licensure monitoring is closely examined by the CDC and the FDA. Typically, a vaccine will develop in about 10 years, so it's a pretty long process, and there are generally several stages. There's an exploratory stage, which is the first stage. It's usually about two to four years long. It's typically federally funded academic or government research to identify natural or synthetic antigens that might help to prevent or treat a disease. Thereafter, there's a preclinical stage, which is about one to two years. And this is in vitro or animal studies, so it's non-human subjects. And typically, this is privately funded And it looks at really the safety and how a human might respond to it before going into human testing. If um, this stage, this preclinical stage proves promising, then an IND application is typically filed. That's generally sponsored by a private company. The application, IND actually stands for Investigational New Drug. So it's an Investigational New Drug application. And that's filed with the FDA, FDA. right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is describing the manufacturing process for your prior exploratory stage and preclinical stages, but also what you plan to do in the future on human test subjects. And those tests are three stages in all, although additional testing can be done, you know, depending on what the company prefers. But the first phase, phase one trials, this is a small group of human adults, maybe 20 to 80 subjects. And the goal here is to really assess safety and determine what the immune response would be. If this is promising, then you move to phase two, which is a larger group of human adults, so several hundred generally. And in some cases in this phase, the individuals that are involved are actually at risk for or already have contracted the disease that the vaccine is used to treat. So this can be really promising for folks that are really in need of of help. And again, we're looking at safety, but also dosing schedules, methods of delivery, and other aspects of the vaccine once it would be released into the public. And then that final phase, phase three, is a even larger group of human adults. It could be somewhere in the thousands. And these are randomized, double-blind studies, testing vaccine efficacy, and continued testing for safety. If all of these three phases are successful, 
approval and licensure is sought with the FDA. So a biologics license application is submitted again to the FDA um, and the FDA inspects where the vaccine is manufactured, the labeling processes and other aspects of the phases that have taken place prior to approval. And if they are happy, then you will get approval and that vaccine can be released to the public. Oftentimes additional studies are performed as mentioned earlier. And these can be continued for testing for safety, efficacy, or other potential uses. So off-label uses, for example, after the vaccine is released. Right, and so this 10-year process is really how vaccines are developed, but the COVID-19 vaccine is under a warp speed process. In <laughs> fact, it's called Operation Warp Speed, and it's a multi-agency collaboration led by the Department of Health and Human Services that aims to really accelerate the development of this COVID vaccine. So there are some kind of notable people working on a vaccine or notable companies. One is Moderna Inc., which is in Cambridge, Mass., which they just went into the phase three clinical trials that Donna was talking about. So a much larger set of humans. Pfizer is also working on a vaccine and hopefully is supposed to have 100 million doses by December. Now, if you think about this, this is like, it really is warp speed because this is a 10-year process and December with 100 million doses, you know, since the gene was just decoded for the disease back in January 2020 is just unbelievable. And it, in fact, kind of makes me personally nervous, I have to say. <laughs> Oxford University is also working on another. Um, and then there's others in the news, too. So there's lots of companies working on it. So I guess the good news is that the best minds are all working on the same problem, which hasn't occurred, really. So um, there's a lot of people working towards this end, and hopefully we'll have a vaccine sooner than the normal timeline. I have to say I'm a little nervous myself, and considering how <laughs> the process normally takes, can this really be expedited? Well, <laughs> to be honest, in the history of medicine, a vaccine has rarely been developed in less than five years. And the DNA of the COVID-19 virus was actually just deciphered in January of this year. So it's no surprise that the road ahead is uncertain. And, you know, whether we'll actually be able to achieve the 100 million doses by December or, you know, how promising these, these phase trials that are already underway will take place. Obviously, the government is trying to get this down to something like a year to be able to get us you know, all a vaccine as soon as possible. And as Carrie mentioned, you know, the world's leading drug companies, universities, and government labs are working on it, but how long it actually takes, you know, we don't know. Well, right, and, and you know, you know, to your question, it, it's the fastest vaccine that's been developed to date was the mumps vaccine, which started in 1967 is when um, scientists started working on it, and it was available to the public in 1971. So it took four years. Now, we could argue that we now have better computers, we have more DNA testing, we have, you know, faster processes that can make that development faster, but can they take it to a year and, and really produce a safe vaccine that can then be produced in the millions of doses for people around the world? It, it's difficult to imagine, honestly. So where in the vaccine development timeline does a company seek a patent? So typically, we advise our clients to seek patent protection as soon as possible. Um, now, there are other types of intellectual property protection that a company or organization or laboratory can pursue, such as trade secret protection. What we are now with the U.S. and most other countries around the world 
are first to file. So that means that once your your invention is made, you want to get that to the patent office as soon as possible because if someone else comes in and swoops in before you, then you've lost your rights. Right. So just building onto that, many of these companies that are working on this are probably filing earlier in the time frame, like before they've even filed their investigational new drug application with the FDA. If they think they have a solution, they're probably filing patents, you know, as close to that time frame as they can in order to be first in line. Now, just to make sure our listeners are all on the same page, what's a patent and what are the steps to obtain one? Well, a patent is a government right that a government grants you, and it's essentially a limited monopoly in the in the property right granted, and it lasts for a period of 20 years. So it's an exchange of the limited monopoly for disclosure of your invention. And the idea is that there's a balance in giving you this limited monopoly, but at the same time, you're disclosing the invention so that that helps science progress with others and people can continue to build on it. And the right that a patent grants is not the right to do something, which is what people think it is. It's the right to prevent others from doing something. So it means that I can prevent Donna from doing my patented process, but I can't practice it myself in case you, Brooksy, had a patent that read on my process, if that makes Got sense. It. So it's a right to exclude, not a right to do. And I think that confuses some people. Also, I always love to ask this question when I give speeches is, where do you think U.S. patents come from? And they actually come from the Constitution. They were one of the original provisions of the U.S. Constitution in Section 8. And it provided these patenting rights for the progress of science and useful arts because our founding fathers believed that progressing science was in the public's interest. That's right. And then, Carrie, I think um, I run across the same issue with kind of a misunderstanding of what rights are granted from a patent. To build on what Carrie was saying, uh, once a non-provisional patent is filed, something called prosecution, which isn't what people often think of the word, begins in which the patent office and the patent owner go back and forth to ensure that the claimed subject matter is useful, new, and non-obvious. Right. So the, what the claimed subject matter is the claims, which are at the end of a patent. And those are essentially the meets and bounds of a property right. So if you think about the deed that you bought for your house or land or, you know, it has meets and bounds, well, the claims in a patent are those meets and bounds for your monopoly. And it gives you the exclusivity over that property and the ability to put a fence and keep people out. But like I said, it's not a positive right to do that. And people really get that confused. So for example, if I have a patent on a chair for five legs, but Donna has a patent on a chair for three legs, I need a license from her in order to build my five leg chair because it necessarily has three legs if that makes sense. But if Brooksy wanted, you wanted to build one that was six legs, you would need a license from both of us because it necessarily has three legs and five legs, if that makes sense. So it, it's an, patents are kind of an interesting property right in that sense. So how long does it normally take to get a patent? So a patent can take one to five years or even longer. The USPTO actually says, that's the US Patent Office, actually says that it's an average of about 22 months. But Carrie and I have seen much, much longer. We've seen 10 years in some cases. In fact, I've seen the patent office sit on a patent before even providing an office action for four years. <laughs> so obviously it it does vary, but they're saying that the average is 22 months based on their data. For COVID-19 matters, the USPTO has actually initiated a pilot program um, waiving certain fees and also prioritizing examination. And so that has been really helpful. They're trying to reach final decisions within six months. That's exciting. Can you tell me about the interplay of vaccines and patents now? 
Certainly. So there's a lot of elements of a vaccine that can be subject to patenting. And so it can be delivery devices, platform processes, antigens, adjuvants, excipients, expression vehicles, I mean, you name it, DNA effects. Um, historically, patents have not been a barrier to vaccine production. In fact, more than 10,000 PCT applications have the word vaccine in the claims. Right. And generally speaking, you know, patents back to the, you know, the bargain and the progress of useful science that I was talking about, you know, it's believed that patents really allow the general public to ultimately get access to essential medicines because they incentivize the manufacturers to make them. Because if there wasn't an incentive, the thought is that these medicines and these vaccines would not have been invented. So we worry about patents and vaccines, especially when they're essential. But at the same time, up to this point, patents haven't proven to be a problem or a hurdle in getting those vaccines to the people that need them. But critics in today's world fear that the nation's right, a nation's right to control how and when a COVID-19 vaccine is distributed, it could be problematic. European leaders, you know, on one side have repeatedly given assurances that if it's a European company or European lab that first develops and patents the vaccine, that they'll make it broadly licensed around the world to ensure that everybody can get access. But if you contrast that, on the other hand, with the U.S. and China, who have been in these tumultuous kind of trade war problems as of late, and let's say one is the first to develop the vaccine, access to that vaccine could be used as additional political leverage in this discussion. So, for instance, if a Chinese lab comes up with the vaccine first, you can see how um, the Chinese government might use this in the trade war negotiations with the U.S., it's likely, I think, that given the rate that COVID-19 is spreading globally, that the demand will exceed supply no matter who comes up with it. So if it is not by a, a lab in the UEP, for instance, then there could be political tensions that exacerbate the issue in terms of access. So it's something to think about. Yeah, and Carrie, and another interesting kind of going back to your chair example, a Wuhan Institute in China actually recently filed a method for use that involves remdesivir, which is owned by Gilead, um, in conjunction yeah, that's an old with drug, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh huh. Um, in conjunction with chloroquine, so that we've all heard about hydrochloroquine in the, in the uh, news. Um, it's a common malaria antiviral. So the patent's not public yet, but the reports of it are. And if granted, the Chinese company would actually need a license from Gilead to even practice. Um, so again, this kind of shows the intersection between patents and vaccines and how you might run into some problems if you don't have right. the rights. Well, in China, if you think about it, the Chinese company may have filed that in a way to ensure that they would get a license to the remendosphere from Gilead in, in order to get access to it. Right. Right. And right. so they filed this combination patent. And so, you know, that's been the basis of many critics saying that um, there may be lots of filings by China labs like these that will disincentivize foreign labs from testing drugs and vaccines in China because they're going to fear that China won't protect their IP rights. Right. And so it, it's an interesting, I think, conundrum there. Lots of political concerns here. Yes. Can the government step in to lower patent protections under certain circumstances? Actually, they can. They uh, have a right to do so by statute. The statute is 28 U.S.C. 1498, in case anybody wanted to write that down. Um, but the, <laughs> the U.S. government can actually force U.S. patent owners to grant compulsory licenses if it's viewed that there's a threat to public policy or public safety and that these patented um, inventions could be of assistance. So the government can grant permission to use a patent owner's invention completely without the consent of the patent owner. They do, however, allow for an infringement suit to recover reasonable and 
entire compensation as damages. This statute also applies to federal agencies and third-party government contractors. So again, there is definitely a vehicle for the government, this being one of them, that the government can step in and basically commandeer someone's invention. Right. And, but, you know, let's, let's note that this only applies to the U.S. government and U.S. patents, right? So the U.S. government can't go in and say, hey, China or, you know, Germany or whomever, waive your patent rights and you have to make these because there's a greater good. You know, the U.S. doesn't, government doesn't have the right to do that outside the U.S. So that gets back to the political discussion and how these trade war discussions will proceed, especially if it's the U.S. or China that first comes up with this vaccine. I should, I should also mention that if federal funds are used to develop the vaccine, in which case currently it appears that many cases that is happening, there's also a possibility of what's called Marchand rights, in which the federal government can grant patent licenses to others or themselves. This has not ever been used. It hasn't been invoked previously, but this is another avenue that government can use. And again, U.S. government to utilize someone's patented invention. Yeah, basically, if the government paid for it initially, they have some license rights to it. But as Donna said, this hasn't been used yet. So, but you know, we've been seeing a lot of things that have never happened before here lately. So you never know. (laughs) It is, I tell you. Marching rights is on my 2020 bingo card. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to add that one to mine. What about the Defense Production Act? Can it apply to vaccines? The Defense Production Act of 1950 is, uh, or the DPA, which you hear about in the news here lately, and it is a primary source of presidential authority to expedite and expand the supply of material and services from the U.S. industrial base needed to promote the national defense. And we've been hearing a lot about this in the news and whether it's been used or not, and it has been being used in many respects. It came, the act came about because of the Truman administration and its need for more authority to mobilize the industrial base to fight the Korean War. So it goes back several decades. It's been reauthored 50 times since it was first introduced, which I find interesting. And as you might expect, the Pentagon is the most common user of the DPA. So using it for a vaccine would be a very new use. Yeah, also the uh, newly enacted CARES Act also appropriates a billion dollars, which is unprecedented to the DPA. So it's anticipated that most of this funding will go to medical manufacturing, including the vaccines that we've been talking about today and other therapeutics. The CARES Act also removes certain limits on DPA funding and reporting requirements so that, again, we can try to expedite this process as much as possible. Right. And so your answer is yes, they can. And interestingly, uh, the president has delegated his authority for this to the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Homeland Security because it controls FEMA. And so in a a sense, you know, this is being used to get to the vaccines. So short answer is yes. Well, apart from the focus on vaccines, can you tell us about any innovations your clients are working on in relation to the pandemic? Well, we can't mention any real specifics because they're secret, but we have seen anything from physicians improving their PPE and for different procedures and and making sure they feel safe and doing their jobs. We've also seen vaccine development, testing diagnostics, and, you know, just other types of protective equipment for frontline people, even if they're not in healthcare. We've also seen some inventions related to sterilization, for example, of commonly used items like grocery carts, which obviously we all experience every time we go to the grocery store. Um, So very big need for that. Lots of problem solvers out there thinking about this from different perspectives, which is good, right? Yeah, can't wait to see what might hit the market soon. Yeah, I think it will be interesting. 
Now, as we all know, the Houston energy industry has been one of the hardest hit sectors of the economy. What have you been hearing from your energy clients? Well, they've clearly taken a hit. And of course, the Russian and uh, Saudi Arabian price war that hit in March didn't help at all. I, I remember watching um, negative numbers <laughs> go by on my phone and computer thinking, oh, no. Um, so <laughs> yeah. definitely our, our clients have kind of gotten a double whammy um, in the energy space. And it's definitely slowed their priorities in terms of you know, what they want to do with their with their funding. You know, they're not really having to kind of really think it through. So we're definitely seeing changes because they've really had this, I've been calling it the energy double whammy. How have they been adjusting? I'm sure they're scaling back budgets, but at the same time, wanting to secure a patent rights for some of their long-term assets, right? That's right. And we did see a brief slowdown initially, particularly when, you know, the Russia-Saudi price war hit in March and then also with COVID becoming a clear giant problem in the U.S. We did see a slowdown, but after that, we have seen an uptick and an uptick in our filings. Um, our clients recognize that they need to protect their innovation for the future because that is still important. And of course, because there's so much thinking outside of the box now, we're also getting some interesting, um, even with our energy clients, you might get a patent on subject matter that you wouldn't necessarily think was related to their particular industry. Well, right. And and like you said, you know, the patents are long-term assets, right? They last for 20 years. And the business goals of today are not necessarily the business goals of 5, 10, 15, even 20 years down the road. So what we've been trying to do is help them prioritize their funds that they do have to keep assets, file assets, and maintain assets that are important for those long-term business goals and making sure that they're making decisions in line with that, and including cost-cutting decisions. We have developed this software program that really helps do that. That alignment objectively so that they can really prioritize and triage their funding. And that's been helpful. We've gotten a great response from clients because it gives them some direction into, into how to spend their money and how to make the cuts. So that's been helpful, I think. And, and I think many, many companies are trying to do that same thing. Right. Being proactive at the outset. Exactly. Well, Carrie and Donna, this has been a most informative discussion. I appreciate the insight into your practice that's seeing lots of activity during the pandemic. Next, let's welcome Henry Gonzalez and Professor Ellen Maris to talk about the effect of COVID on the juvenile justice system. Henry, you're the executive director of the Harris County Juvenile Probation Department. Would you tell us a bit more about your background? Sure. I've been with the Harris County Juvenile Probation Department for over 30 years now. I've worked my way up within the department from a diversion officer to intake while I was still in undergrad, all the way up to this current position. And what's your current role entail? I, as the executive director, I oversee uh, pretty much the, the, the entire, uh, all of the operations of the department. We have, uh, you know, several different divisions here. We receive referrals from all of the law enforcement agencies for kids who are charged with class B misdemeanors and above. Uh, we oversee the, the pretty much the court process for the kids. And we also, of course, supervise those adjudicated youth out in the community, both on a, a, a formal type of probation and informal probation. And we also operate our juvenile detention center and two post adjudicated facilities as the executive director of the probation department, I'm also the superintendent of the Excel Academy Charter School, which is a, a it is an open enrollment charter school, but we are different in that 
as far as being open enrollment, it's not that people really come in and want to ask to go to our school. We serve these the students of our residential facilities, the detention center, our post-adjudicated facilities, and then we also provide the education for the kinder shelter for the kids in there, and then we have a small community-based program school for kids who it's almost a dropout recovery type of program and kids just aren't making it in their home school and so we provide high school credits uh ged instruction and vocational training sounds like there's a lot under your umbrella there is yeah it's fun <laughs> and ellen you're the royce till professor of law and director of the center for children law and policy at the university of houston law center how has your career path led to your involvement with the juvenile justice system I went to law school late in life after teaching everything from preschool through college and went to law school to be a stronger advocate for children. I found very quickly that teaching still remained in my blood. So although I was a public defender for a while in California, I also wanted to get back into the classroom. And I have been now at the University of Houston for over 25 years and have taught a variety of classes but one of the classes that I enjoy a lot is had been more recently added to the curriculum, which is street law, which is one of the ways that I've gotten back involved with the juvenile justice system in Harris County. But I also teach juvenile law, which also kept me involved and ran our clinics for a long period of time. Well, it's great that you can balance both interests. I'd like to move now to an overview of the juvenile detention and probation process. Could you give our guests an overview of how that works here in Harris County under normal circumstances? Sure. Like I mentioned earlier, we get the referrals for any juvenile, which would be someone between the ages of 10 through 16 years old, who are charged with Class B misdemeanors and above. The majority of the kids who get involved in, in an offense like that don't actually come to our detention center. We'll get what we call a paper referral. But for those either more serious offenses or when a police officer is not able to contact a parent to release the kid to, then they will call us and we'll do a screen in over the phone. And uh, then at that point, make our recommendation as to whether the, the juvenile should be brought into our detention center or not. So the vast majority of kids are screened away from the detention center and released back uh, to the parent or guardian. For those that do make it in, the, the law enforcement officer brings them to our juvenile detention center at 1200 Congress, the juvenile justice center. They release the kids to us. We do a screening with the kid. And again, we try to divert the kid out of the detention center if at all possible and, and try to get the kid home. For those that end up staying, they have a detention hearing within 48 hours. We're gathering as much information to provide uh, the judge who's gonna hear the detention hearing. And then from there, that decision is made as to whether the kid will remain detained pinned in court or if they can go home pinned in court. For the kid that remains in detention, then that's when we start the social history process and create a court report to give the judge a, a recommendation on what should happen to the kid during that time. Uh, a referral is made to our health services division and the full psyche eval is, is 
completed on the kid so that we can have that information to give the judge and then the judge makes a decision on, on what happens to the kid those options are they can non-suit the case the kid can get adjudicated and end up on community supervision on some level of community supervision the child can be placed in the custody of the chief probation officer for placement out of the home and that can be either into one of our residential facilities post-adjudicated facilities or to a, a private placement we contract with other residential treatment centers that can provide the, the services that we don't have a juvenile can also be committed to the state school which is texas juvenile justice department and then of course there's also the option of certification so that's pretty much the process of of what can happen to a kid that that comes to us under normal circumstances and how about now during the pandemic what changes are we seeing i think the biggest change is the number of kids when we look at referrals overall for between this year and and last year uh, or, or let's look at january our referrals for january and february for total offenses coming in was in the 500s about 550 for june we were at 266 so we we see a significant decrease in referrals overall for kids and then our, our detention center as well i think in the beginning of the year we were close to 200 kids in our detention center and we were able to take it down to under 100 kids i think we were under 100 kids uh in june and july um so that's really the, the biggest change that we've seen yeah so so the numbers and, and it's a significant decrease so uh, i'll add one thing to that, Henry, and I don't think you disagree with that. Although the numbers have gone down, the children have been there longer because they cannot so easily go someplace else. And in addition, our disproportionate minority representation has stayed the same. Yes, the majority of the kids in our detention center are kids of color. And then Ellen's right, and then the, the processing did slow down for cases. So unfortunately, Kids are staying in, I think, longer than they, they need to be in here. Now, recently, the, the courts are, are back up and running again. Emphasis is placed on the kids who are in custody. But like, like Ellen mentioned, moving kids, particularly those that have been adjudicated and are going to go to some type of placement, whether it's one of our private placements or for those kids who are committed to the state, at this point, TJJD is not accepting kids at the rate that they usually do. So in any kid who has been committed to the state as, since this COVID situation has remained in our detention center until they can start accepting them again. And then there are private placements that, and rightfully so, aren't accepting kids either. So if that was the case to where a kid was supposed to go to a particular private placement and they put a hold on intakes, then we had to either wait until they open that up again or start the process and looking for a new facility to where this kid can go in and get the services that the courts intended for them to get from this placement. So uh, again, it has slowed down the process.
is the intake hold due to social distancing type measures or another reason related to COVID? I think it's it's the fear, particularly being that we are Harris County and that we are one of those hotspots. You know, most of these juvenile facilities, particularly the state ones, are in very small jurisdictions and uh, they are really nervous about accepting kids from hotspots. So, you know, they want to make sure that the kid that they're getting isn't coming in with the virus. And whereas testing isn't the easiest thing to do in all jurisdictions, for us, we test every kid that comes in and and we have actually moved those kids out of our detention center into one of our post-adjudicated facilities, knowing that they are negative. And so we're keeping them there. These facilities are still just nervous about that. You know, and again, I, I can definitely see why they would be. Understandably so. Absolutely. Now, Ellen, where does street law come into this process? Well, I have been trying to work with juvenile probation for several years to try to get street law into the juvenile probation system. It's a program that was developed to help children understand the law in a way that would help them become better citizens. So it's not just a matter of teaching them how to get out of a problem, but how to solve problems differently so that they don't get into trouble in the first place. And also to understand the legal system, to understand why we have the laws that we have and the effect that violating those laws has not just on them as individuals, but their families, the community. And there's a whole process that we go through. And Henry was very open to bringing street law in. And we were going to start in the fall semester with the post-adjudication facilities. And Henry said, well, why can't we start sooner? And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Let me see what I can do. And we decided to go into the detention center because the other thing that's as I mentioned, that's different right now with COVID is that the kids are there much longer. Usually children are in and out of the detention center pretty quickly. And so programming isn't the main issue. They have school, but not necessarily a lot more than that because they're supposed to be there for a short period of time. These young people have been there for a very long time. Many of them since COVID broke out since March and even earlier than that because they were waiting for post adjudication and then their placement and now they're stuck. And so we thought that we'll have this at least steady population that we could work with during this time. And as somebody said yesterday during our debriefing sessions, it's been great because we've had this steady population. On the other hand, it's terrible for the kids um, because detention is not a place where children should be for long term. But at least this gives them another outlet, street law. It gives them exposure to other people. So not only have the children learned, but everybody doing this program in the detention center this summer are all volunteers. And they come from a large walk of life. Some of them are practicing attorneys in firms. Some of them are attorneys, but they never practiced because they didn't have the desire to do so. Some are uh, social workers, some are educators, and they just come from a wide variety of backgrounds. And they learned a lot about the juvenile justice system and a lot about the children who get caught up in this. So it's changed their view of what is necessary too, which I think helps the whole system in the long run because it gets community support for making changes. And it really helps the kid because what I've been real impressed with is I've been able to sit in on on two of these classes 
is to see the rapport that the kids have with their instructor. It, it's just, it's very, very impressive. It's, you know, the kids are anxiously awaiting for their, their instructor to, to appear on the, on the screen, because of course we're doing it remotely. It, it was just great to see that, that these kids have someone else out there who, who doesn't work here that, um, you know, cares enough about them to do this twice a week and that, that is consistently coming in to be with them again, even if it is remotely. That was that was just really good to see. It was kind of amazing too, because it's difficult to build relationships yeah. via the camera and via long distance and remotely. But the children really have reached out to the instructors and the instructors have also reached out to them. And I think one of the things that has also helped was Henry's willingness and some of his staff's willingness to really go beyond also. So when a kid comes to us with a problem, they haven't talked to their attorney. They don't feel that the judge is listening. I can go to Henry with this and he goes deeper and he tries to talk to the other people involved. Yesterday, he talked about trying to make sure that the judge heard this young man's voice. Um, because it was so powerful. And I think that has made a difference too, both for our relationship with the youth and also for their view of the way juvenile probation can help them in the future. It's great to see that meaningful relationships are forming and there is a bright spot, even in light of the lengthier detention process. Now, you brought up that the street law program has gone remote, like so many things during the pandemic have. And I understand that many facilities, in-person family visits and lawyer meetings have been suspended. Is this the case in Harris County? Yes, it is. The face-to-face -face visit, the family's actually coming in. We, we have had to suspend and we haven't started that up again. I, I'm trying to find a way in which we can do that safely. So right now what we've done is we've expanded the visitation or, or the communication beyond just phone calls. We purchased the technology so the kids can do the the FaceTime type of visit with their families now. So we, we purchased iPhones, we got some iPads and put those on the floors. Reception isn't the greatest in a building like this. So there's going to be those technical difficulties. You know, we see that when in just starting street law every every session. We've also taken away that very strict and rigid, this is how many minutes you get on, on a phone call. As long as we have enough time for the kids to rotate, then, then you know we try not to put that limit on there. That can still be difficult because the, the family has to be available. They have to have the technology to be able to do that. But we're trying all we can. And, and now I'm just trying to find a way in which we can get that face-to-face -face interaction, that in-person visit with the families. It's difficult in our building because we don't have outdoor space here where we're in the middle of downtown. If we did, then I could come up with a way for parents to come in and visit their kids and so social distance and be out in, in the open air. But, um, you know, we, we have that, that limitation here. As far as the attorneys, what we've done is we've made the the kids accessible to their attorneys basically at any time. So we've set up a protocol to where the attorney, let's say Ellen is the attorney, Ellen will call the detention center and say, I'd like to schedule a, a visit, a remote visit with my kid for this day, this time. Do we schedule that if it's going to be, you know, a, a phone call or a virtual type of meeting? That's done 
at the on the kids floor in their we have little private rooms in there to where they can do this and we've made it available to attorneys pretty much any time any day so even on the weekends we want to make sure that they they're able to communicate and what when ellen was you know mentioning kids feeling that they don't have enough communication with their attorney what we've done now is we we're making sure that the kids attorney is on their phone list because for visitation purposes and, and phone call purposes, the parent is the one that creates that approved phone list on who the kid is going to call. And we discovered that attorneys weren't on there because attorneys typically would come in and visit their kid. Well, now we're making sure to put the defense attorney's phone number on that phone list. So if the kid says, I wanna to talk to my attorney, I wanna call my attorney, now the, the kid is able to call the attorney themselves and then they can initiate that communication. So how are children able to understand and know the status of their cases while they're detained? Is it through this attorney call system? That should be part of it. Every kid who is in detention has, is assigned a, a court probation officer, what we call a court officer, and they should be maintaining that communication with the kid, you know, on, on an ongoing basis, and it should be very, uh, on a very regular basis. Now with COVID, I understand that that isn't happening as much as I would like for it to happen. So one of the things that we are working on right now is to place what I'm calling resident advocates on every floor. I want someone who's going to bring to our attention that they've noticed that, you know, little Ellen hasn't had a phone call with her family in a couple of weeks because they've not been available. I want to know that little Johnny has been trying to reach his attorney and, and hasn't been successful or that this court officer hasn't had communication with Johnny. I want someone to bring that to our attention so that we can feel comfortable that the kid is getting all of that information, that the kid has someone to talk to when they need to talk to someone, when there's an issue, that, that it's actually addressed, that if a kid files a grievance, that it's getting where it needs to get. So I just want to add that extra layer right now, that, that extra set of eyes to make sure that we are addressing the needs and the, the concerns of those kids. Yeah, so that, that's what we're working on right now. I think Henry is really trying to take every step possible, um, but it is a major problem because even when children go to court right now and it's over Zoom, they don't <laughs> understand that process. They don't see that as a regular court hearing. They still feel like they're not going to court, that they're not getting that any process going forward. That's one of the major complaints that we hear from the children. And although Henry's tried to open up all lines possible, you know, it takes more than just Henry doing that. It takes the attorneys being willing to come forward and talking to their kids on a regular basis. And some of the attorneys are concerned for their own health. A lot of the attorneys practicing in juvenile court are older attorneys. They have been around for a while and they're not very comfortable going into the detention center at this point in time. Parents aren't getting the information that they need to get about their child's case. I've always felt as a defense attorney that my client was the child, 
but I have to still work with the family. I have to be able to at least inform them what's going on in the case. I don't have to reveal information that my client doesn't want me to, but the fact that they, they're going to court on such and such a day for a, t a detention review hearing, the parent needs to know that. And they can't find out about that 10 minutes before the hearing and expect to be able to participate in that. And no judge is going to let a child go home if the parent isn't there being involved. Uh, and so then the hearing just gets reset again and the child is still in the detention center and nothing, there's been no progress. And not only then does the child not understand why they're still there, but they also feel like, well, my parent must not care about me coming home because they didn't even show up. So there's lots of problems there still. And no matter what a child does, we need to remember that, that they're still children. Around the world, people have even changed the way they talk about the juvenile justice system. They don't use the word juvenile anymore because that in itself is degrading and puts the child in a different status. And so they talk about children who are in conflict with the law, but they're still children. And we have to change our mindset um, COVID should be pushing us in that direction, um, and it has to some degree, but all across the country, there's the same kinds of problems. I can't say that Harris County is unique. I think where we're unique is that we have a probation chief that is different than in many places, but he still needs the community behind him. He needs the legal system behind him. He cannot do it by himself. And I can't emphasize this enough. And it's not that, you know, like Henry's my best friend and therefore I'm gonna just support him, but I can see the efforts that he's trying. And I don't see those efforts across the board. And I have some real concerns about that from, like I said, prosecution to defense to the judges. And then you bring up a good point and the kids really not understanding what's happening. And so after I got off of this, this Zoom yesterday with the kids and, and you know, I'm really thinking about what, what I heard the kids say, I, I called our deputy director of residential services, who's over all of the facilities. And we were talking about the fact that there aren't enough people talking to the kids about things that, that they need to talk about. Um, and, and so I was asking what kind of groups our health service folks are doing because I, you know, these kids don't understand everything and they have questions and they need people who are going to address those concerns with them. And we all know kids aren't the best at, at asking questions or even knowing what questions to ask, but we should be explaining that. For example, the kid yesterday was talking about when he goes to court, he hears it's always the state is requesting this, the state is that. And what he said is the state doesn't know me. I've never left the city of Houston. So how does the state know anything about me? I think that someone should be making an effort to really educate the kids on what this process that they're about to go through is. What does it mean when someone's up there saying that the state feels this? And just to explain every bit of what's happening to them in here. You know, the, the kid also expressed the concern, especially now during the COVID time, when they see the news and they're hearing about people losing their loved ones who are testing positive and then end up in the hospital and then they, they don't get to see them and just how that's even, you know, more of a concern when young person is in detention and then they have a family member 
who's in that situation and they whereas like all of us we, we were we're not able to say the the traditional goodbyes to our loved ones like we could before covid for these kids it's even worse because they've already been in here for months and so they've not seen that loved one and so who is really processing all of that for these kids so that they could express themselves and how they feel about this and how it's really affecting them. So we need a lot more talking for these kids, someone going in there and and it's trying to explain things to them and just listening to them and hearing them and addressing their concerns. So we, we came up with a plan to do that as well and get in more of our psych set because we're very fortunate to have a health service division with with you know a good number of mental health professionals in our department and let's make sure that they are on the floors with every kid not just the kid who has exhibited some type of mental health concern that warrants someone coming in and seeing them we've got to make sure we're doing that with every single kid in here and a lot of youth keep that inside of them also one of the reasons the young man yesterday was able to talk about everything is that he's had several weeks of talking to the same people three times a week. And right. then he could come out and express those things to Henry also. And, you know, every time I've been into any of the units visiting, and I go around to all of them. It's after I make sure that they're all set up and they have them, I go around to all of them. And one thing I can say is that I've seen every single time those children are so bright. They may be behind in school. I'm not saying that they're not, and they may have some learning differences, but the way they express themselves and their understanding of things that are way beyond their years that they shouldn't necessarily have an understanding of. Right. But they can express it. They understand how the system works from the racism within the system to the way young people are looked at in the system as animals. And although the staff calls their cells rooms, they never do. They call them either cells or they call them cages because that's what they look like. And they understand the difference and how people look at them in that process. And they also understand that they did do something wrong. Right. It's not for for a lot of the kids. Now, some of the kids feel that they're innocent, you know, and that's true in the adult system and it's true in the youth system. But for those kids who know that they did do something, they recognize that and they don't think that they should just be in the free world. They do think that they have to have some consequences. That doesn't mean that they need to be locked up like animals. And that's where they see that difference. And I think that's very important. They also recognize that if they weren't brown or black, that they might not be there, no matter what they did. And that also is a very hard lesson for young people to be learning. And it can affect the rest of their lives and the way they view society as a whole and the way they will interact in society. And if we don't want to have a throwaway generation again, we need to make some changes. Right. And these kids even recognize the situations that, you know, their own personal situation that they have. One young man yesterday talked to us about the fact that he didn't really know his father. His father's been incarcerated since he was three years old. His older brothers have been incarcerated. And what he shared is that, you know, for the most part, his mom has given up on him to, because what she's telling him is 
you're going to be just like them. So do whatever you're going to do. And what he was telling us is that's not what a mother should be doing. A mother should be spending time with her kid and talking to her kid, taking her kid on vacation, not giving up on them and expecting that they're going to be just like everyone else in, in their family. And then that kind of becomes the case. So these kids have a lot of insight to everything that's going on. And like Ellen said, those aren't things that kids at this age should be dealing with or thinking about, but it is. And, and that's where they are. So yeah, they, they take accountability for what they've done, but they also see that life has been hard for them. It, it's, it, it was different. And, and like Ellen said, very different than their white counterparts. And then another thing is like, although they're young and it's probably not great that they have their own children, some of these young people in the Gustav Center have their own children right. and they haven't seen them for months. And they're concerned about that too. And what kind of impact that's going to have on their children growing up. And yes, maybe they shouldn't have had children, but they do. And they're aware of the impact that all of this can have on their children growing up also. And they're concerned about that too. Are any of these COVID-related changes that we've discussed highlighting opportunities for future change in the juvenile justice system here in Harris County? I think they are. I think when we look at just our referrals overall, you know, that that is indicative of that law enforcement or that they're doing something different. I, I know one, let, let's say, for example, we used to have a lot of kids in detention for assault on a family member. And some a situation happens at home. Uh, it blows up to where is something becomes it becomes a physical altercation between the parent and the kid or something is thrown and something's damaged. And so then they call the police, the, the parents are angry, they just want the kid out of there at that point. And, and where can you take the kid? Unfortunately, the only place is the juvenile detention center. So that's where the kid ends up. Now, and, and we're very fortunate to have the chief prosecutor of the juvenile division that we have, because I think he's very, very progressive and open to a, a lot of diversion type programs. What he's done is, is he's reached out to law enforcement and asked them in those situations, don't file charges, call the youth service center, which is a, a part of Triad, which is a collaboration between the Harris Center, the local Children's Protective Services and Juvenile Probation, because there they have those intervention services there. And, and let them deal with it. Traditionally, if a, uh, a child is charged with a Class B misdemeanor above, they cannot go to this shelter. But now that law enforcement is not filing that charge and they are able to take the kid there where there's a shelter to where it just gets the kid out of the house for that night, and then it allows us to, or it allows a system to pull the parents in and receive services through the Harris Center, through a program specifically for families that, that had this type of situation occur in the home and they, and they provide the services in the home. Now the kid can go there without a charge, be connected to the services that they need and get those services. Whereas again, before the kid was coming here, that's a process that needs to stay in place. I think also with our intake process here in detention, we need to stop just accepting that the parent is saying, nope, angry at my kid, don't want him. 
to where we are basically now saying, I'm sorry, your kid cannot stay here. He cannot come in here. You know, come pick your kid up or we're going to take him home. So I think that COVID has given us the opportunity to look at how we were doing things and ask, does it really need to be done that way? And how can we do things differently? So I, I think with a lot of this, I'm hoping that these are some permanent changes. I hope that our detention center numbers remain lower. We've done the same thing with our post-adjudicated facilities to where now our numbers are very, very low in our post-adjudicated facilities. And I'm hoping that we can keep them that low because then I think we can have a much more effective program if it's a small number of kids in there. And what we're doing now is doing our best to connect those kids and the families to services in the community. And that's what we should be doing. And like Ellen mentioned earlier, we need that community support. We need the communities to come to us and, and ask, what can we do to, to help you with these kids? What can we do to help our own kids in our community to where they remain a young person of that community and not a young person of the juvenile probation department? So I think it's given us the opportunity to look at things differently, do things differently, and I don't see why we can't maintain some of those, those changes. So the County of San Francisco in California has been working on lowering their detention numbers and incarceration numbers of youth for a while now. So they're further ahead of where we were when COVID started. But one of the things that they did is they greatly reduced their number of children in detention. And as of June, so it might be even less now, they only had 10 children in detention. That's where we should be. And um, we're getting there, but it's taking us a while. But one of the things they also realized, piggybacking on what Henry said about the community support, is that they don't have enough community services and community programs to provide the necessary programs and support that the children and the families need. So that's where they're now trying to build things up. That's something that we've also talked about a lot, that there has to be more programs within the community that provide the right kinds of services. And we have some, but we don't have enough. And we don't have enough volunteers within those programs because those programs are going to be very expensive because it needs a lot of people to provide these services. And in that sense, you need also a lot of volunteers because we can't pay everybody to do some of these things. And if I could get at the last minute 12 volunteers to come in and do street lock three times a week for an hour each time. It seems to me, if we work at this right, we should be able to get people in every community being willing to help these kids to some degree. We could have more mentorship programs. We could have more family outreach. We can have more people role modeling for parents who have no idea to be, how to be parents themselves because they were never parents very well. We have to do something about that. We have to start at the very beginning so that we don't lose generation after generation. If someone from the Houston community would like to get involved with the detained children or at-risk youth through the street law program or otherwise, how could they do this? 
Well, Henry's trying to help me work this out because right now we're entering into an agreement for the fall and it has to be only law students. So that's what our insurance covers and that's how we can do it. So Henry's going to help me find another way of getting people involved from the community because we have several people who have been doing this in the detention center during the summer who want to continue working with the youth. They don't want to leave them and they don't want to leave them high and dry for sure. So they want to still be able to continue doing that. I have other people reaching out to me. I'd like to be able to tell the Youth of Bar Association, yes, we can use all of you, but Henry's going to help me work that out. Yeah, and, and what we want to do is, for those people that are interested in, let's say, volunteering, working with us, what I want to do is to be able to direct them to a community-based organization that's doing this. So it's not that you are really volunteering to work with the Harris County Juvenile Probation Department, but that you are volunteering out in the community with the community organization, because that's where families should be going to seek assistance, to seek help, to seek guidance. It should be in the community. So again, what we try to do is, is hear what their interests are and then connect them to organizations, let's say like Revision Houston. You know, And so that might be something that we can do is in Ellen's case, is speak to Revision and, and see if they would like to participate in the street law program, and then the volunteer is, is volunteering with them and they're providing it. Again, so that it's, it's not the, the probation department doing that. You know, we're working with organizations like Justice for Families, which is a national organization, to help us recruit volunteers and train volunteers to be a family coach type of, of position to where it is a parent who has been in the same situation and understands who is helping that parent not just navigate through the system, but to support that parent. One of the things that we're dealing with right now, and that's why our numbers are staying where they are, is we have families who come in and say, I don't want to take my kid home. It's not because I don't want my kid. It's not because I don't love my kid, but it's because I'm concerned of what's going to happen to them when they're out there. And my kids are out there, so I'm afraid of what's going to happen to them or what they're going to do to someone else. So I'm afraid to take them home. We need to be able to give that parent the support they need in the community so that they're comfortable taking that kid home and that they have that person to reach out to to say, you know, Ellen, I don't know what to do with my kid. What would you suggest? What do you think I should do? And that they can help them. They can help them to become a, a stronger parent. So for those individuals, have them call us and then we will do the best that we can to connect them to an organization to where they can do what, what they want to do and then they can help us in the way that they're able to help us. And we can provide training materials. We can provide materials for them to use both with the youth and with the parents. So we could do a second aspect to this to reach out to parents, not just about understanding the system, which I think is important for them too, but also how to solve the problems with their child in a different way. Because that's part of what street law is all about. It's just solving problems in different ways and understanding how you can do that. So we could provide a lot of materials to, to cover that and trainings. That's something that I can do just as both a professor at the law school and the director of the Center for Children Law and Policy. Well, Ellen and Henry, I know I've learned a lot through this conversation, and thank you both for taking our listeners inside of the juvenile justice system here in Harris County. 
and for your leadership in affecting meaningful change for the children looking for a brighter future. That's all for this episode of Behind the Lines, the Houston Lawyer Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Please remember, views expressed by participants of this program are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the editors of the Houston Lawyer or the Houston Bar Association. The content of this podcast does not constitute legal advice.